Today, as I said before, I'm leading worship. I'm not teaching, and a little extra blessing this week. I was working on preparing, and then all of the the chaos of VBS is like, whoa, this is crazy week. And uh, so I get a text from Pastor Andy Dean, and he says, hey, I'm in New Jersey this weekend if you want to break from teaching. And then he's like, LOL, I know it's too late. I'm like, no, LOL, you're on. So um, the, Lord, the Lord just brought that special blessing as I'm sitting there like my brain is just exploding. And I'm like, oh, Lord, what, what, I need somebody. And then there's the text. And he literally, I told him, I said, you are an answer to my prayer. And so um, uh, Pastor Andy is from New Jersey and pastored here uh, for a number of years, was a youth pastor up at Calvary Chapel Old Bridge. And uh, we've grown in relationship over the years. And then, of course, he was out at the Bible College in Marietta, California, where Pastor Mark served with him on staff as well, and has recently stepped into the lead pastor role at another cornerstone, uh, Cornerstone Community Church uh, there in Southern California. And um, he didn't bring shoes with him on his vacation, so give him grace and give him a warm welcome this morning, Pastor Andy Dean. As everyone looks at my feet. There's a reason, okay? We tried to pack, we tried to pack um, in one luggage instead of the two we normally do. And we're like, let's see if we can do it. And I said, I can help with this. When I was younger, I had a travel theory called the disposable luggage travel theory. And I would go to Italy with, with a luggage, you know, and, and make it there. And I would leave just with a shoulder bag with an iPad and a phone and my wallet. And as, every time on the trip, I would just hang up clothes on fences as I was done using them. And it felt so good to go through the airport with nothing coming back from Italy. So I reinvented that and did that again. So these jeans are the only thing coming home with me. These sandals get thrown away. And so I had nothing, I had barely appropriate clothing to wear. I brought my worst T-shirts to wear. So I, this is as best as I can look for you this week because I wasn't pretending to be here. So, well, uh, so good to be here. So thankful. This church has a substantial amount of people uh, on staff and in the congregation that have meant so much to me and mentored me in my life and been a big part for my family's life as well. And so I'm so thankful to be here. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be talking about breaking destructive patterns. And boy, are there a lot of destructive patterns in the book of Judges. Now, if, if you haven't read through Judges, and you're just hearing the word Judges, and unfortunately you're thinking Judge Judy is your best reference for what a judge is, that is not what we're talking about. In the Bible, a judge is a deliverer. It's like a war hero, a, a savior, this person who would judge among the people, but would also lead them into battle. The book of Judges, we have 12 judges. They're all wildly different, Samson being a famous one. You've got Ehud, the lefty, um, Gideon, I named my son Gideon. And uh, he's got an amazing story. Deborah, there's, there's amazing stories of faithfulness in the book of Judges, but also unfaithfulness by the very same judges. This is a dark period in Israel's history. It's almost as bad as it can get. Some of the stories you read in the book of Judges make you wonder, why in the world did God not start over <laughs> with a new people because of how wicked they were acting in this book? So the question is, how did it get so bad? And how does it get so bad in our own lives? What happened? Well, you don't have to turn there. It's just one verse at the end of the book that I'll, I'll read to you. But Judges 17.6 tells us exactly how we get there. 
It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the problem. When there's no one that is leading us towards God and influencing us towards the Lord, what do we do? We forget that we have a king that is our God, and we just do whatever feels right, whatever's right in our own eyes. We're going to be in Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 19. And this mantra of doing what is right in our own eyes is what gets us in trouble today ourselves, isn't it? The moments we forget King Jesus and we say, I'll just figure this out. I'm not going to think if there's a Bible principle that's relevant. I'm not going to check in with the Spirit in prayer and and see if the Lord will guide me. I'm not going to check in with mentors who love the Lord Jesus and care about me. I'm just going to make this decision that feels good and feels right. That's when we get into so much trouble and we go down a path that we carve without the Lord, and then he has to save us from that. So today, we're going to talk about the issue that causes this to be so bad, the issue, the results from this issue, the hope that we have, and then the fix that we see in the scripture. So first, the issue, it's in verse 7 of Judges chapter 2, where we see, so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Perez in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. What's the issue? I believe the issue is a lack of intentional discipleship. That's the problem when a new generation arises without knowing the Lord. There was a lack of intentional discipleship. How does a generation grow up without knowing the Lord? Well, it's because the failure was in the elders and the parents. I'm going to put a slide up on the screen to show you the the progression that we see in the scriptures that starts with Moses. All right, with Moses knew that we needed to pass this on. And so Moses passes on the faith to Joshua, and Joshua passes on the faith to the elders and the parents that outlived him, and then there's a hard stop. We see this in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Moses is telling us in the spirit that we need to always be passing on our faith to the next generation. And so we're sure that he did that in his own family, but he did that with Joshua as well because he passes on this leadership and the faith to Joshua. And Joshua doesn't just take it and run with it and get all greedy and forget about the Lord. Joshua does the same thing. In in Joshua chapter four, says, then he spoke to the children of Israel saying, when your children ask their fathers in a time to come saying, what are these stones? You shall let them know saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. They had set up a monument for the purpose of teaching the next generation that would stumble upon this and say, what is this to give an object lesson to the elders and the parents that they needed to continue to talk about the Lord? And so this progression was intentional. Moses said, pass it on. Joshua said, pass it on. And the elders and parents that outlived Joshua did not pass it on. The issue is a lack of intentional 
discipleship. And we don't know why, but we can guess based on our own lives, right? Busyness, distraction, and comfort will lead to spiritual amnesia. Right? That, that's, that's what happens to us because intentional discipleship is just as needed today as it was in the times that we see in scriptures. Each generation needs to be taught who the Lord is and what he has done. And not just what he has done in the scriptures, but what he's done for your family. How he's been good, answered prayers that you are experiencing. So it's no surprise that in the New Testament, this theme continues. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told that we are to bring our children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Right? We need to continue to raise up the next generation, but we have the same exact temptations to not intentionally disciple because it, it never, it's never a reaction. It never happens by accident. We need to be intentional, plan it, calendar it, prioritize it, that we have the same temptations of busyness, distraction, and comfort that cause us to forget about this. You know, the average U.S. adult, this is a scientific survey that was done recently. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Very precise. The average U.S. adult is on social media too much. Right? Too, just too much. Right? I, I didn't even bother looking up the stat because we're, we're all on screens way too much. You know, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Bible here, not screens. We're talking about our sanctification. And if we don't deal with the main distraction, busyness, and, and comfort that we have in our lives, then we're never going to intentionally disciple. How about this? This hits a bit closer to home. A recent study, an actual one, says 54% of kids think their parents check their devices too often, and 32% of them say that makes them feel unimportant. Ah, oh, man. I've got elementary age kids, three of them, and what a heartbreaker to hear that they associate the phone in my hand with a lack of importance that I value them and that I care about them. It's too much. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that an hour and a half church service once a week is enough to counter everything else that is influencing us throughout the week. It's just not possible. I, I tell uh, the Lord's other cornerstone in California um, often that, hey, even if you appreciated the sermon, this isn't where change happens. The best case scenario in a sermon is momentary conviction from the Holy Spirit where you're like, ah, oh, I need to change. And then it never happens unless you are intentional about it. And most of the time that won't happen outside of accountability and discipleship and, and smaller groups when people are holding us accountable. And so each Sunday we feel this pull towards something better and then we don't do anything with it if we're only involved with church on Sunday, once a week. Jesus didn't believe this at all. Jesus spent three years living with and traveling with the disciples. He believed in small discipleship groups, pouring into one another, seeing real life with each other, holding each other accountable. So it's no wonder that the disciples of Jesus picked up this same model of intentional discipleship. We're gonna put another slide up on the screen to show us how Paul lived this out in 2 Timothy. Paul passed on the faith to Timothy and told him to pass it on to faithful men who would pass it on to others. And so he says this, 2 Timothy 2, 2. And the things, how did that get in the King James? That's great. For 400 years, that was the best, but, I, and we did it. It was my, my team that put the slide together, but let's read it this way. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's making it really clear. He's talking to Timothy, saying, find faithful people 
But then it doesn't just end with them, or else we'd be at the same level as the elders and parents in the Old Testament. He says they need to be committed to say, the journey isn't me learning. The journey ends when I pass it on to somebody else. It's the passing on that is so important, not the learning in our faith. The process of passing is a necessary ingredient if we want to experience the abundant life that Jesus has for us. Otherwise, we're just like selfish. You can be a little ruder when you're a guest speaker because you're just gone afterwards. Like I'm literally heading to New York City. You won't even follow me. I'm going to go through the Holland Tunnel. You'll, you'll give up following me at that point and turn around and go back to your family. So I can be a little ruder and more aggressive. But Mike is kind and nice and hasn't asked me to do that. And so, listen, if we want the abundant life, it's not just I will absorb all the truth and let everyone else go to hell and let everyone else stay in their sins. And, well, that's their sins and that's their destructive patterns. No. I will receive the truth so that I can pass it on, live it out, and then pass it on to others. And so the issue is a lack of intentional discipleship. Where does that lead? What is the result of that? Well, the result is a self-destructive pattern, and we see that throughout the book of Judges, but I'll highlight it in verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed the other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And there's a season of peace that always happens. And, and yet, verse 17, they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. And they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked. And obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not so you can see the pattern just in this passage, and then you see it as you read through the entire book of Judges. It's a self-destructive pattern. I'm going to put another slide up on the screen just to show you what happens in the book of Judges. It, it, it always starts with rebellion, right? The, the, the wicked human heart will rebel against God, and then we live in rebellion, but it's so destructive that God has to discipline us. Discipline begins at the house of the Lord, and so he disciplines us. Eventually, that discipline and the consequences of our bad decisions hurts us so much that we realize there's got to be a better way, and we repent. And then after that repentance, God will bring a deliverer. He will free us from our, from our sins. He will free the people by giving them a hero to follow, and the enemies of God will be defeated, and there will be a season of peace, usually only as long as the judge was alive. And then again, there's a lack of intentional discipleship, and the pattern repeats with the next story when rebellion starts up all over again. This is the result. We are stuck in a destructive pattern that hurts us so bad. And apart from the grace of God, we are all stuck in that pattern, all of us. I had the privilege of, of meeting someone who is just becoming unstuck from this pattern for the first time in his life. A few weeks ago, I had my appendix out. That was a ton of fun. You should totally schedule that with your doctor. Um, and so... I was in the hospital, and I, I love evangelism, and I love talking to other people, but we, all, I want, we just want privacy in the hospital because it hurts so bad. And I was in the hospital with someone who was having a hard time sleeping, so he kept the TV on 
all night long, and I'm a light sleeper, so I'm losing my mind but trying to be a Christian, right? And so I'm just being quiet. The next day, we find out we both have the same birthday because you're always telling them your birthday to get medicine and stuff. And so I say, hey, do you have, is your, are you November 14th too? Say, yeah, I am too. So he's really interested. He's about 20 years older than me. He's just really interested. I start sharing my story, my testimony of God's faithfulness. And, and he starts saying things like, man, I wonder if the Lord sent you here to me. And he tells me that he's at that time 100 days sober and he's just fed up. He's there because of, of internal bleeding from his past decisions with drugs and alcohol. And he's just fed up with that. And he hasn't been to church in two decades, but his parents have been praying for him. And he starts to think that this is a divine appointment. In his own words, I hear him talk to his mom on the phone and she's all excited. And turns out the next week, he sits with me during worship before I get up to preach. And he's been at our church for four weeks now, for the first time in 20 years, and he's going to our Celebrate Recovery. Now he's 130 days sober. And you think, man, the Lord, apart from the grace of God, we are all stuck. So later today, when your appendix bursts, just realize the Lord wants to use you in the hospital. It's going to be a great story. It's worth all the horrible pain that you'll experience. But we find ourselves in this pattern, right? And we say to ourselves, how did I end up here again? I promised myself and the Lord that I would never do this again, and I'm stuck in this pattern because a destructive pattern is our default without intentional discipleship and accountability. Change is hard without other people saying, like, hey, you said you wanted to change. You told me to keep you accountable. You know, let's do this together. And it's just part of what it means to be a Christian is nothing about it means sit and listen. It's all about helping each other. So Paul says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we have to help each other. And we do that gently, knowing that we're sinners and we struggle and we're embarrassed at our own sin. And so we're gentle with others in restoring them back to the Lord. So the result of a lack of intentional discipleship is a self-destructive pattern on repeat. It happened in the book of Judges and it happens in our life and we hate it. And we get so discouraged and we think we'll never change. But the hope the hope is that God is compassionate towards us. Look at verse 18 of Judges 2. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Listen to this. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. There were times that even before real repentance, just groaning over the consequences of their sin, that the Lord would be moved to pity and start to bring a judge to help them. If God were not compassionate, we would have no hope because God is also righteous. And so we deserve the judgment. We deserve the consequences of our sin. And yet God is compassionate. As discouraging as the book of Judges is, it reminds us how relentless God's love is. And if he didn't give up on them, maybe he won't give up on me. Every time we see Israel falling into these destructive patterns, God shows up at some point to stop it for a season. We try it our way. We end up in a huge mess. We eventually run out of options and turn back to God, and he welcomes us back. Every single time, the Father welcomes us back. And so you may be sitting here saying, yeah, but my life is a disgrace. You're talking to a guy who's wearing sandals from a quiet, cool, like whole house fan company. That's what I'm wearing as I preach. I'm a disgrace, right? We, we think my life is a disgrace, but God 
is greater than your disgrace. God's grace is going to help you get through this, no matter how bad your situation is. And it can be bad, and it can be discouraging, and there can be real, real addictions. There can be the real pain that when we break relationships and think this will never be mended, but God is still love despite all the things that we do. And so we actually have to see his discipline as a form of his love so we don't run away from the consequences that will eventually teach us to, to not do the same thing over and over again. So we're told in Hebrews, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for the Lord loves, loves who he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Right? The discipline of God is a part of the love of God. We only want the love of God in the, Lord, sweep it under the rug so nobody else knows about it, and then I'll never do it again, and you'll forgive me. We think that's just the best version of the Lord's love is we don't get caught. We promise not to do it again. We're given that strength. But very often, it's that proverb style of wisdom that we learn from our consequences and just realize that even when we sin against the Lord multiple times, he's always willing to welcome us back. And so a good father is going to discipline. And, and as a parent of, of three young kids, I've, I've tried to be a good father, and sometimes my discipline really is just my own frustration and anger, just trying to stop the fighting and yelling, but I'm not really helping my kids through that. But God isn't like that. God's discipline is always gracious and loving, even when it's painful. And so we try and run away from the consequences, thinking that's what's really going to help us is just to short-circuit it. So there's an issue in the church, and you're caught, and it's really discouraging. And what do we do? Well, we just leave and go to a different church. And in America, that's really easy to do. And we don't change because we don't stay in the uncomfortable times of discipline and, and consequences to grow. And so if I really love my children, I will show them, hey, there's consequences to this. And so there was a time where we had to uh, take, I think it was take iPad, an iPad time away from one of our kids for two weeks because it was like, I mean, it was like school disrespect. It was a letter home from a teacher saying, your child was disrespectful. And then when we heard what they said, we're like, oh no, like bad, like substitute teacher being told, oh, what you do is easy, you know, something like that. That's the, anyone can do that. And you're like, what kind of rotten pastor's child are you, man? Man, were you raised by Mark Nigro or Andy Dean, right? I mean, you know, and so you're thinking, what in the world? And so I'm like, oh, this is, it's one thing to disrespect your mother, and that can get my blood boiling, but like you're disrespecting a teacher at the school. And so it was like a solid, hey, two weeks without the iPad. But we were trying to do that in, in, you know, in the wisdom of the Lord. And so God is compassionate and loving. And so we weren't giving the other two kids extra iPad time to really rub it in, because the Lord wouldn't do that. And so what we decided is, hey, every time the other kids get iPad time, Mom and dad are going to sit with you, and we're going to pray with you, and we're going to read the scriptures with you, and we'll even play like a, a little board game with you or something to remind you, hey, yes, there's a consequence to your sin, but we love you, and we want to see you through this. And it was like, we felt like we had like parenting moment of the year right there. And then I think in a week, a week later, we forgot about it and gave the iPad back and ruined the whole lesson. Ruined it. We're reading a parenting book right now, though, on vacation, so we got this. Listen, the discipline of the Lord is actually... His love, it's in his compassion. Receive the consequences, learn from them. And so the issue is a lack of intentional discipleship. And so if we're not in a situation where we have discipleship, we're in a danger zone. 
We may be coasting along in a neutral territory with the Lord, not doing bad things, but we're in a danger zone, just like the, the book of Judges. The, the results of that is that we end up in self-destructive patterns. It's our default nature, apart from a close relationship with the body of Christ and with the Lord. And the hope that we have is that God is compassionate. And so it's never too late. It's never too late to repent of, of our sins and be with the Lord. But what's the fix? We actually want to stop hurting the people that we love. We actually want to show the Lord, no, you're so worth it. I want to follow you and say no to myself. What's the fix? In the moments of clarity that we have, we have to break the cycle. And that might happen during a moment of worship or during a moment of the consequences of our sins. But when we have that moment of clarity, we have to break this destructive cycle. We see a negative example of this in verse 19. It says, and it came to pass when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. We don't see the solution actually in this book because they continue in their negative habits, but they call themselves stubborn. We are stubborn in our ways. We are reinforcing these bad decisions. We are not breaking the cycle here. And so how do we have a moment of clarity to break the cycle? Well, it all starts with prayer because God knows we've tried to, to do this on our own. We've, we've tried to repent on our own without letting anyone else know so we're not shamed by, by anything that's going on. It starts with prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to do a lasting work in our hearts. We need to give God glory and honor him in our change, otherwise we just have this like behavior modification thing that isn't going to give God glory, and he won't, he won't honor that. There's good decisions you can make and all those things, but, but we need to seek the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry, would you help me? Would you do this work in my life? And then with the Lord's help, we attack the stubborn ways that are in our life, the unhealthy, destructive, sinful habits that are in our life. Now, I read this book a couple years ago called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. It's this yellow cover, New York Times bestseller. He's not a Christian, but he sure is referencing some powerful things where you just realize, I'm made in the image of God. God wired the human body in a certain way. And this guy's right that we have habits in our lives and there's things that we can do to change that. And so just wanna show you a Christian perspective on what he has seen in some basic science and how we can seek the Lord in that. So I'm gonna put another slide on the screen to talk to you about what he talks about a habit is. He said, a habit always has a trigger. Something triggers the habit to, to start. And then there's a, a routine, a behavior that you do when the trigger happens, and then you're rewarded. There's a craving that is rewarded. And this happens with uh, addictions to alcohol and drugs, addictions to pornography, addictions to you know eating in an unhealthy lifestyle. And it also happens with good habits. There's good habits where sometimes there's a cue, like a temptation, but you've wired yourself to say, no, in that moment, I'm gonna start immediately praying and I'm gonna call somebody and it's an accountability partner. And the reward is, wow, God, you were faithful to get me through that temptation that you skip. Positive or negative, you usually do see these three things, right? And so... For, for me, you know, I see it working out in different ways in my life. And so if there's a, there may be a mild donut shop addiction and, you know, and because in California, it's not just Dunkin' Donuts. There's all these mom and pop donut shops that are life-changing. I mean, everything about them makes you feel like that a fresh Dunkin' Donut 
was actually made years ago and frozen and just put on the shelf. And, and then you have these other ones. You're like, oh. So when I'm driving by hole-in-one donuts, I don't know why. There's not even a golf course nearby, but there's a hole in a donut. And so I drive by there, and it's like, no, I, I probably should just go to, no, I'm going to stop real quick. I'll bless everyone on staff by bringing donuts, you know, and feeding my habit. And so when I stop there for a dozen donuts and bring six of them home for my family to, to eat and be, you know, be blessed by, there's, there's, a, there's a trigger Right? It's driving by the donut shop, and I'm like, oh, man, well, I just usually buy donuts, and the reward is obvious. Have you ever had a donut? They're made by cherubim in the back of a restaurant. There's these floating fat baby angels that mix the batter and, and deliver it. A human ends up handing it to you, but in the back, there's cherubim making these things. They're, they're amazing, so the reward is obvious. And then there's things, good habits I want to start, like exercising. Thank God for my appendix being removed. And then going back two weeks later to the hospital for three days for an abscess that developed from it bursting. And thank God for that because I have the best excuse in the world not to exercise. It would be, it would be against medical orders for me to exercise right now. I've read a lot about exercise on Wikipedia. I've read up about it a lot and I've theorized about it. And one day I will do it. But, but, but habits keep me from doing that right now. Listen, here's what the author says. When a habit emerges, this is scary. The brain stops fully participating in decision-making. It, it stops working so hard or diverts focus to other tasks. Unless you deliberately fight a habit and find new routines, the pattern unfolds automatically. He says 40 to 45% of decisions are actually just habits every day. Every day we do 40% of things that we do just because we're in the habit of doing them. That's why it's tragically so easy to give into temptation to self-destructive habits because we've wired our mind to head in that evil direction and we're not intentionally stopping it. So no wonder we see Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 say this, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. He says, I'm going to make sure that my body is actually a tool to be used for the Lord. And so I'm going to have scheduled times of prayer and I'm going to have scheduled times of fasting and resisting food so that I am telling my body constantly no so that I can walk in the spirit despite the cravings of the flesh, which is where many of our temptations arrive from, if not from the world. And so we have to intentionally rewire our lives towards godliness with God's help. It's not a science experiment. It's just how God made us. And he, he gives us all the tools we need to seek him and find his grace. And so we have to look at you know, these things and change them and say, actually, when that temptation happens, I will call my accountability partner. I will say out loud, no, no devil, you know, or whatever it is, because it provides me with this faithful life of, you know, honoring my family, honoring the Lord. And we, we rewire the habits. Now, just want to say one more thing on this and how Christians can use this, because he speaks, his main point of the book is speaking about a keystone habit. A keystone habit is so powerful that it will affect wide, wide uh, change in your entire life. And so he gives examples of people who start exercising. Their only goal is, I'm going to exercise. And they start hijacking their life, and they, they leave their, they go to bed in, in exercise clothes. They leave their, you know, running shoes right there by the bed. The alarm goes off. Okay, the next thing I'm going to do is put those shoes on. I'm going to develop this habit. If their only goal is to exercise, Here's what begins to happen. They, they start to eat healthier, even if that wasn't one of their goals. Like, well, I'm already running all the time. Maybe I should try that green stuff that everyone talks about. They begin to feel less stress, and they even spend less money on their credit cards. 
just exercising causes all of this other change. And you're like, that's, that's impossible. How could that even be connected? Well, that's what all the surveys are saying. Each keystone habit creates small wins that will boost your overall motivation for other habits. Now, for the Christian, done with the science. Now, for the Christian, what is the keystone habit? What is one spiritual discipline, since the word habit feels a bit too like science and secular, right? What's one spiritual discipline that if we just do that one spiritual discipline, even though there are many spiritual disciplines that we want to do, what's the one thing that if we do that, it will affect widespread change and sanctification in our life? Well, you may be able to guess it, but it's daily Bible reading. That's the keystone habit for the believer that changes everything. My family and I just visited the Museum of the Bible in D.C. Really, really well done. This year, we've been able to see the Creation Museum, the Ark Encounter. We're hitting all the cool Christian attractions in the world, right? And so it was awesome. They did a great job. They've got kids stuff, stuff for adults. It's great. The American Bible Society reported in a recent study that this was done with Barna Research, the best out there that Christians who consist, or just people who consistently engage with the Bible, if you consistently engage with the Bible, you will also, what will happen without even trying is you will pray more, attend church more, you're more likely to volunteer, you're more generous givers, and you will forgive more people. Just from reading the Bible, your whole life will change. But here's the scary thing. The same survey says that those that engage with the Bible once a week experience no change in their life. There's no noticeable change if you just come to church on a Sunday and that's your only Christian habit. Isn't that sad? You're like, well, I'm like, but I'm like, I'm doing good. I'm coming to church on Sunday in a culture that doesn't do that. There's no noticeable change in your life if you only come to church on Sunday. What's even scarier is if you come to church on Sunday and maybe go to another Bible study or read your Bible one other time during the week and you engage with the Bible twice, there's no noticeable change in your life. Three times a week, and it just starts to blip up a little bit. We're like, oh, that's start four times a week, and it goes off the charts. Everything changes if you engage with the Bible four times a week. Everything, like you have to read the study. I mean, like anxiety drops 40% in your life if you engage with the Bible four times a week. Everything that you want to change in your life gets better. Basically, if not only coming to church, you develop a daily Bible reading habit. And so it's just one of the most important things that we can do. And it's exactly how things played out in my life experientially. I remember, you know, growing up in a Christian home, dedicating my life to the Lord, And then two weeks later on the dot, every single time, falling back into my old sins, living a judge's kind of a lifestyle, and then with emotion, with tears in my eyes, repenting and coming back to the Lord. And then two weeks later, the cycle, I mean, like 20 to 30 times as a kid through like in my 20s. Why does this keep happening? I I would ask myself that. Why? Like I'm crying and saying, Lord, forgive me, I'll change. And then I don't change. Well, I wasn't reading my Bible. And so then in college, when I was trying to process all this, I was like, you know, the, Lord, I can't tell you I'm not going to be back here again because I always am, but I'm going to make this commitment. I'm going to read the Bible every day, whether I was out partying and drinking too much and doing things I shouldn't be in New York City or not, I'm going to read the Bible every day. And so I made that change and everything changed in my life. That's the, that's the exact moment that I began to have consistency in my walk with the Lord. I've hurt people and, and sinned, and all, but 
but my consistent walk with the Lord changed the moment I decided to read the Bible every day. And when I added journaling to that to process what I was reading, then it, it, it went exponential. That commitment to read the Bible, and it's not hard. Like, it is, isn't hard. All of culture and all of your distractions are telling you, oh, one more little news story, and then maybe I'll read, and then you never do. Everything's against you, so it's hard in that regard. But it's not hard in the sense of you just do the math, right? Reading, reading the whole New Testament this year is your goal. It's actually the easiest thing that you could do this year. It's like five to seven minutes a day reading one chapter a day only on weekdays, and you take the weekends off to be lazy. And you could read the whole New Testament. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament. There's 260 weekdays in the year. It's kind of odd and awesome. So literally, a Bible reading plan you could do is weekends, I do something else with the Lord, or weekends are for making up when the midweek gets too busy. So you're like, all right, five minutes a day, five days a week, and then I've got two days on the weekend to make it up if I mess it up. It's impossible to, to not do this if we have our hearts in the right direction. But you can accomplish a goal you thought maybe you could never do. I'm going to read the whole New Testament this year. It's really easy. Reading the whole Bible is just four chapters a day and can take just 20-something 20, 20 minutes to do that. And so to do these things will be life-changing. And it's not just Bible reading and, and Sundays. It's, it's how do I gather with the body of Christ, whether it's a midweek service, a home group, or finding some people that can mentor you, serving on a team here in the church. It's the relationships that we develop where we bear one another's burdens with each other that breaks this. It fixes it because it's how God intended us to live in community. Just like the Trinity has lived in community all, all of time, we are made to live in community even though we want to isolate ourselves because of shame and guilt and, and busyness. God wants to do this in our lives. And so as we look at the book of Judges, it's really right to look at it and most of the Old Testament and say, that didn't work. You can look at the entire Old Testament and say, oh, the patriarchs, you know, God is creating a nation. That didn't work. They were a mess, right? And you look at, you look at the, the book of Judges and you're like, oh, man, they were a, they were a mess. And you, oh, the kings, now that they have a king, that's going to work. That didn't work. It didn't work for them to have a king. Everything, the law being given to them, it just didn't, it didn't work. Why is everything not working and then all of a sudden Jesus arrives on the scene, the righteous judge, our deliverer, and it works, right? The, the, the God of grace and mercy who is willing to forgive us, it works with Jesus because I think it's just all designed to show us in our best efforts, we can do nothing. You can't read a New York Times bestseller on habits and change yourself where you're not hurting relationships and hurting yourself and hurting this world. You can't do that apart from the grace of God. So it's not reading a habit book. It's being with the body of Christ, getting to know Jesus in the word, talking back to him in prayer, serving with each other here, the body life here at the church. And so unfortunately and fortunately, the whole system is rigged. If we try and take an American approach that's just easy, comfort, convenience, come into church a little bit late, leave, leave at the very end and don't really get to know anyone, nothing's gonna change. Even though we think, oh, I tried Christianity. Like, I tried that. It didn't work. I went to church for years. Well, that actually doesn't work. But engaging with the Bible four times a week, being a part of the body here at the church, taking up the, the pastors and the leaders here when they're saying, we're looking for some people to serve at VBS. We're looking for some people to help out here. Being a part of the body of Christ and developing those relationships and accountability, it works. And so I feel, it breaks my heart when people say, I tried Christianity. And what they're really saying is like, I read like a little bit of the Bible and I went to church and it didn't work. Like, well, that was never intended to work. Nothing in the Bible 
shows us that we show up once a week and it works. But if we want to give ourselves to Jesus, deny ourselves and throw everything we have into this, it works, right? Jesus has, is going to be there to help us. And so it's not easy. And so I'd like to pray for us, for God to give us the grace to make some of those courageous decisions to make changes. So Father, we're asking for your help because we need it. Lord, it's not, it's not something that we can do on our own. Every one of us in the room here, we've tried. We've tried so hard to make changes in our own way, in our own strength. But we're asking you for help, Lord. And part of that means that we have to follow you. And so we're going to follow after your word. We're going to do this together like you've asked us to do in this local community. And so, Lord, give us the strength and the courage to look at our busy schedules and make some changes and prioritize time with each other here. Lord, so that we can be built up as strong believers and Christ followers that aren't just strong ourselves, but for the purpose of going on mission and reaching those in our neighborhoods. Lord, the goal isn't to become the best version of ourselves that we can be. It's to fall in love with you and develop your heart for a lost world so we go chasing after them and bring them into a healthy church where we're growing and there's change happening. And so give us that heart and burden for the lost. Break the cycle of destruction that is happening in anyone's life in this room, Lord. If they're stuck in that pattern, show them the hope that is in a compassionate God and give them a moment of clarity today to ask for help in breaking those patterns, Lord. We know that you'll do it because you're compassionate. And so we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.